A few years ago, when my daughter was still home, you know, after school, she told me about a conversation she had with a group of kids. And these were religious kids, church-going kids. They're having a conversation about what constituted serious sin. Now, my daughter named homosexuality as a serious sin. But the kids at the table disagreed. The response she got from the kids, from church-going, professing Christian kids, was that while homosexuality might be named a sin in the Bible, we shouldn't really judge it like that today. If it is a sin, they thought of it as not a serious sin. They said it's up to God to judge anyway, not us. So it should be treated as a personal choice. One young man, the spokesman who voiced the majority opinion, basically dismissed homosexuality as trivial. And then he went on to name what he saw as serious sin, cursing. He named cursing. He explained that the words we use, the way we communicate with others, crude or judgmental language, could cause offense to others. And that, to him, was serious sin. So this young man, and, and please realize, this young man was a very active in what most would consider a very conservative Christian church in a very conservative Mennonite community. To this young man, cursing is a worse sin than homosexuality. Homosexuality isn't really sin at all to him. But saying an offensive word, and what he was getting at was, in his mind, offending a homosexual with words of rebuke for his lifestyle is more of a sin than the homosexuality itself. This young man lacked a biblical perspective on sin. Amen. Now, I'm sure he wasn't aware of it, but God's law, Leviticus 19.17 specifically, charges us with rebuking our neighbor for sin. We're to do it in love. That's part of the law as well, but we are charged with rebuking sin. To withhold rebuke for a sin like homosexuality is actually a sin in itself. No, this young man lacked a biblical perspective on sin. Yes. Yet sadly, this young man exemplifies modern Christianity. Amen. The fact is the average Christian today cannot reliably identify what is sin and what isn't. They no longer look to God's law to define right and wrong. And because of that, they don't understand the nature of evil. They have a hard time recognizing evil, which leaves them vulnerable unanchored, and unrepentant. Modern Christianity has lost its connection with the law of God. Amen. And that's why our society faces a crisis it does today. You know, the disintegration of our culture that's happening all around us, the moral disintegration, the demographic disintegration, the economic disintegration, all of it, is a result of our separation from God. Yes. And make no mistake, there is no fixing this without a return to God. You know, our nation is $31 trillion in debt. That is $93,000 per person. Every single man, woman, and even every single child in this nation, from the day he is born, owes a $93,000 debt that is our portion of the national debt. We can't fix that. I don't care what policies some candidate offers. I don't care how good a man that people choose to elect. The debt is, unavoidable, is an unavoidable crisis just waiting for its time to happen. There's no way out of that. Judgment is coming. Amen. Demographically, we're also headed for judgment. You know, even without the wave of immigrants right now coming across the border, the last census showed a 300% increase in race, mixed-race Americans. You know, mixed-race Americans now constitute 10% of the population, one out of every 10 people in the nation. And for the first time ever, the census showed an actual decline in the white population of this nation. God's children are dying out. That isn't getting fixed. Whites already make up only half the population. That's also skewed heavily toward older ages. The average white person is 44 years old. 
the, the, at, the, at the tail end of childbearing years, and the average minority in America is 31, right smack dab in the middle of childbearing years. The majority of children of this nation are going to be non-white. The future of America is already that of a non-white nation. At this point, it's irreversible. And that means the nation is changing. You aren't going to keep the nation we had if you change the people that make it up. At the, as this nation fills with Mexicans, we will end up with a nation like Mexico, not the nation of our ancestors. I don't care what people try to do about it, judgment is coming. And morally, we're disintegrating as well. Morality is the basis of civilization. Things like marriage, things like modesty, things like gender roles, these are the things that define how we interact with each other. When a group of people all hold a similar set of beliefs, it binds them together in society. It creates civilization, but our society is going every direction at once. People no longer hold a common set of ideals. There is no common moral framework anymore, no common foundation for our society, and there's no fixing that anymore. Judgment is coming. There's no fixing the path to destruction this culture is on. The only refuge we have is with our God. The only path through the gauntlet of destruction the future holds is through our relationship with God. Judgment is coming. It's time to get right with God because he is the only one who can get us through this. Amen. That's why I want to talk today a little about the law. I want to talk today about the purpose of God's law, how people become separated from God's law, and the impact our understanding of the law has on our repentance, on our relationship with our Heavenly Father. You know, take a moment, if you would, and think about the law of God. Have you ever noticed just how different God's law is compared to laws in our culture? If you look at how laws are written in our culture, you'll see some regular characteristics. Our culture strives to write laws that very clearly define what you're allowed to do and what you're not, and our laws also clearly specify a punishment. For example, I picked a random law from my home state of Indiana. This is Indiana Code 9-20-1-3. It deals with the power of local authorities to close roads. It reads like this. Section 3, subsection A, except as provided in subsection E, local authorities with respect to highways under their jurisdiction may by ordinance, one, prohibit the operation of vehicles upon any highway, or two, impose restrictions as to the weight of vehicles to be operated upon any highway. For a total period not to exceed 90 days in any one year, whenever any highway by reason of deterioration, and it goes on. 425 words divided into 11 subsections, very clearly defining what is permitted and what is not concerning road closures, and the specific punishment for violation is a class C infraction. That's law in our culture. Precisely defined limits, precisely defined punishment. Now compare that to God's law. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor thy father and mother. That's the fourth commandment, one of God's laws. Six words compared to 425, even though it addresses a far broader subject of far greater importance than closing roads. God's law sounds different from our law, doesn't it? If laws were written in the United States like the fourth commandment is written, lawyers would have a fit. To be law in our culture, we would need a clear definition of what it means to honor, what exactly is required, and what is banned. We would need a definition of the words father and mother. Does it include adoptive parents? What about step-parents? What about non-custodial biological parents? What about step-parents after a divorce? Are they still considered mother or father? And we would certainly need a punishment defined for violating that law. The fourth commandment, as written in scripture, could never be law in our culture. Neither could most of God's law. There are no penalties listed in the food laws. That just doesn't work for law in our culture. Leviticus 19 forbids bearing a grudge against your neighbor. What exactly is prohibited there? 
Tailbearing is against God's law. What exactly is the definition of tailbearing? Lawyers would be having coronaries trying to figure it all out. God's law is structured fundamentally different than the laws of our culture, and there's a reason for that. God's law is designed with a different purpose in mind than our laws are. In our culture, law is structured around a principle called the rule of law. Our laws clearly define the limits of permitted behavior so the law itself can act as a mediator of our disputes. If someone harms you, you can point to the law to show precisely where they crossed the line. The law itself specifies the remedy. The law itself resolves the dispute. The purpose for this is to protect our rights. Law in our culture is like a castle wall facing outward, defending our rights against others. But God's law is a little different. You know, in the 19th Psalm, there's a description of God's law. Verse 7 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now think about that for a second. The law of the Lord converts the soul. It makes the simple wise. It enlightens us. That's how scripture describes the law. That's how King David, who wrote these words in the Psalms, thought of the law. It converts us. It enlightens us. But is that how people think of law in our culture? You know, when I read Indiana Code-9-20-3-1, did it convert your soul? Did it make you wise? Did it enlighten you? No, of course not. And no one in our culture expects it to. We don't expect enlightenment from our law. That's not how we use law. Our culture's laws are designed to protect us. IC 9-20-whatever is designed to protect the people's right to travel by limiting government's right to close a road. It's not designed to teach us. It's not designed to convert our soul, but God's law is. God's law is designed to teach us. It's designed to make us wise. It's designed to enlighten us. It is designed to convert our soul. The purpose of God's law is not to protect our rights. The purpose of God's law is to teach us our responsibilities. Instead of detailed limits that protect our rights, God's law shows us broad principles that teach us our responsibilities. Take a look at Galatians 3 and 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The Bible tells us the law serves as our schoolmaster. Its purpose is to bring us to Christ. As Psalm says, the law converts our soul. God's law is written with a very different purpose in mind than man's law is. Now, the reason that's important is growing up in our culture, Modern Christians bring cultural expectations with them when they read God's law. This is one of the things that separate modern Christians from God's law. This is one of the primary reasons that modern Christians reject God's law. Let me give you an example of how this happens. Numbers chapter 30 is a law concerning vows and commitments. In verse 13, concerning the vow of a wife, it says, Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it, or her husband may make it void. Now, what do you think goes through the mind of a modern Christian when they read this law? They expect laws to protect rights. That's what they expect. That's not what this law does. When a modern Christian reads this law, the thought that goes through their mind is this law doesn't protect women's rights. This law does not protect rights. It actually seems to take rights away. So this law appears flawed to a modern Christian. It doesn't do what they expect law to do. It feels wrong to them. It just looks like bad law to them. Or what about Deuteronomy 22.5? The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Again, what goes through the mind of a modern Christian when they read this law? They might think it's good advice. A lot of Christians might think it's something that they would like to follow themselves. But it doesn't seem like something that should be law. 
As a law, it doesn't protect rights. It doesn't protect freedoms. Instead, as a law, these verses limit choice. It limits how we're allowed to dress. To our culture, this law is a law that does not do what law is supposed to do. To the mind of someone used to our cultural view of law, it just feels wrong. And it's not just gender laws. Biblical food laws are another set of laws that feel wrong to people today. In our culture, there are laws governing food, but in our culture, food laws are designed to protect the consumer by limiting unsafe practices of food preparation. In our culture, for example, food laws limit how a meatpacking plant operates. We do not expect laws to limit what we're allowed to eat. To our culture, biblical food laws just seem inappropriate. They seem restrictive. You're free to follow them if you want. They might work as great health suggestions, but people in our culture reject biblical food laws as law. Same goes for laws requiring festival observance, for God's laws prohibiting religious worship of false gods, or for so much of God's law. God's law just seems like bad law to modern Christians. God's law just feels wrong to modern Christians because they harbor a different cultural expectation for law. And that's why modern Christians reject God's law. You know, God's law doesn't match their man-centered expectations of good and evil. God's law just feels oppressive to them, not liberating. And this perception of God's law as oppressive is a principal reason modern Christianity runs away from Old Testament law every chance they get. Whether they say God's law only applies to the Jews, or they say the New Covenant did away with the law, or they say the law was made only for an ancient time, it doesn't matter. Whatever the justification, the fundamental reason that modern Christians go down the road of abandoning the law in the first place is because they view God's law as harsh and oppressive. They want to get away from it, so they find a way to abandon it. Let's take a moment and talk about oppressive. You know, it's common today to view God's law as oppressive. And at the same time, most people think of the society we live in as free. What's truly ironic is just how reversed those two perceptions are from reality. God's law is not oppressive. But man's law most certainly is. People talk all the time about how many, there's so many rules in the Bible. You hear people say that all the time. So many rules in the Bible. Well, let me point out something. You know, every year, year of release, Israel was supposed to read the laws at the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, the Bible is about 1,200 pages long. The first five books, the books of the law, are about 250 pages. And not all of that is actually law. When you actually count the laws in the law of Moses, there are 613 laws. That's what scholars say you, found, you find when you actually go through and count. Now, think about the laws of our country. You know, a law is written into law by going through the process of being a bill in Congress. There has been a single bill in Congress that was 5,593 pages long. Now, remember, the Bible's only 1,200. That bill alone was five times as long as the entire Bible. Can you imagine sitting down and reading all the laws we're supposed to keep in this country like they did in ancient Israel? Do you know how many laws there are in the United States today? Take a guess. You know what the answer is? Too many to count. And I mean that literally. Too many to count. People have tried. There have actually been studies commissioned to count all the laws in America. They tried and they failed. They literally could not count them all. Between all the federal laws, the state laws, the local laws, the municipal and county laws, then you have the different regulatory agencies, the IRS, the EPA, the FDA. You can go on with the alphabet soup for a long time. Between all the different sets of laws we are subject to in this country, even well-funded, organized, concerted efforts to count them all have failed. But of course, oppression isn't just about the number of laws. Oppression occurs when laws interfere with justice, when laws unjustifiably interfere with our daily life. That's when oppression occurs. But again, when you look for oppression, do you see it in God's law, or are we more likely to see it in man's law? Well, I'm sure you all heard of incidents where a child's lemonade stand was shut down by public health officials, or a criminal is clearly guilty, goes free because he wasn't read his Miranda rights. 
The laws we live with in our society frequently interfere with justice rather than produce justice. And let me give you a few examples of incidents that actually happened under our laws. In Washington, D.C., it's illegal to eat on the subway. Well, if you're there, be careful and follow that law. Because during an undercover enforcement operation, police actually arrested, searched, and handcuffed a 12-year-old girl for eating a single French fry. She was transported to a processing center where she was booked, fingerprinted, and detained. And it was ridiculous. But the case wasn't just dismissed. The case made it all, all the way to the U.S. Court of Appears, Appeals, where Justice John Roberts presided at the time. And yes, that's the same John Roberts that's now on our, the head of our Supreme Court. The worst part is, though, Justice Roberts sided with the police, upholding the arrest of a 12-year-old girl for eating a single French fry in the subway. While he called the policies that led to the arrest foolish, he said that's not the question. It was the law, so he upheld the arrest. Justice Roberts wasn't concerned with justice. Justice Roberts actually upheld a law that he knew went against justice. That's oppression. In Palo Alto, California, a 61-year-old grandmother dealing with late-stage breast cancer was unable to trim her hedges to the satisfaction of code enforcement. It only took a few months before she was arrested, criminally charged, and labeled a flight risk. She eventually was forced to plea bargain to avoid jail time. Think about that. Jail time for not trimming your hedges. That's oppression. And you can go on with abuses by the IRS, the TSA, the EPA. You can point to farmers who lose the use of their land to EPA mandates. You can point to bakers and photographers forced to serve at gay weddings. You can point to businesses forced to employ people just to meet federally imposed racial quotas. Right now, you can point to uh, masks and vaccine mandates. Our laws certainly do interfere with justice at times. Our laws certainly are oppressive at times. But when you look at God's law, what do you see? Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. If you take the time to actually look, if you read scripture without our cultural pre preconceptions, you don't see oppression in God's law. In Hebrews 10, there's a passage that exemplifies a misinterpretation that's prevalent when people approach scripture with our preconceptions of our culture. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now, what do most Christians see there? They say, see, no mercy. Moses' law had no mercy. That's what they expect from God's law. So that's what they see. But read the next verse. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. Yes. Now, sorer punishment. Do you see that? It says there is sorer punishment now. Sorer punishment under Christ. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy. But when we sin under the new covenant, we're actually worthy of harsher punishment than existed under the law of Moses. Right. Now, no one thinks of the new covenant as harsh and oppressive. And that's because it isn't. The new covenant is not harsh or oppressive. But then again, neither is the law of God. Joshua 5, verse 3. Let me show you a passage that contradicts the modern impression of God's law. God's law is not oppressive. It never has been oppressive. Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the, force, at the, hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out when circ were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness. Let's drop down to verse 7. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. Now that passage struck me when I read it. The modern, ten, the, modern, yeah, the modern tendency is to think of harsh enforcement under Mosaic law, no mercy. Yet that's not what scripture, scripture actually says happened. You know, for 40 years in the wilderness, 
The nation of Israel did not circumcise their children. They had been given the law. The law commands circumcision, but most of the people simply didn't do it. And the striking thing is, Moses didn't do anything about it. Moses did not rigidly enforce that law. He actually didn't enforce circumcision at all. Nobody did it. Nothing happened to them, at least for Moses, at least. When the Israelites were finally entering the promised land, Moses said this, Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Moses was saying, in the promised land, this has to end. You're not going to keep doing whatever you want. In the wilderness, the people were all basically doing their own thing. Moses had a hard time getting the people to obey God's law, yet even with all the disobedience, his enforcement of the law was merciful. It wasn't oppressive. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 14. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast in the seventh month. That's tabernacles. That's the feast we're at right now. In Nehemiah, they read in the law how it says to dwell in booths at tabernacles. And drop to verse 17. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. Since the days of Joshua. This is Israel in the promised land. It was part of the law, but no one had kept that law all through the time of the judges, all through the kings. They didn't keep it under Samuel or David or Josiah or Hezekiah. These were all good leaders. Yet none of these leaders did anything about it. The law of God was never harshly enforced, like laws about not eating food in the subway are harshly enforced in our society. People didn't suffer, suffer under a heavy, heavy hand of God's law. And contrary to popular opinion today, the ancient Israelites didn't live life under God's law like they were sitting in a Catholic schoolroom with a nun standing over the shoulder, just ready to wrap their knuckles if they did something wrong. Sure, there was enforcement. You know, there were even executions, like the execution of Achan for idolatry. There were executions under God's law, just like there's executions under our laws when it's necessary for heinous crimes. But God's law never stood in the way of justice like ours often does today. God's law never restricted people in their lives with no justification like ours often does today. God's law was not oppressive like ours often is today. And when we look a little deeper into the purpose of God's law, we can see why. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36... It's a very well-known passage, actually a very well-liked passage, and yet almost none of modern Christianity actually understands or believes what's simply said here. Matthew 22, 36 says this, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love thy, the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The modern church fails to understand that last line. They don't believe it. It's a very simple, straightforward statement. On these two commandments, on loving God and loving your neighbor, hang all the law and the prophets. That's a simple statement Jesus makes there. All the law is built on love. But the modern church does not believe that. You know, Jesus tells us the law is built on love. All the law is built on love. All the law, every last commandment God has given, is built on two principles, to love God and love your neighbor. Every law in God's law is an expression of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. That's the lesson the law teaches. That's the lesson that converts our soul. You know, we're supposed to learn from God's law what love means. And learning that lesson brings us to Christ. That's the purpose of God's law. And as a second witness to that point, there's Galatians 5.14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And you can also go on to Romans 13.8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. 
For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Do not kill, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. It gives these as examples of loving your neighbor. And you know it's easy to understand how thou shalt not kill is an example of loving your neighbor. It's easy to see that love is thou shalt not steal. But it goes, it goes on to say that all the commandments, all of them, if there be any other commandment, all of God's law are examples of what it means to love your neighbor. Just as, as Jesus said back in Matthew, all the laws are built on these two things, to love God and to love your neighbor. You know what that means? That means the food laws are examples of loving your neighbor. That means the feast days are an example of loving your neighbor. All the law is an example of loving your neighbor. Now, it's easy to understand if you love your neighbor, you won't kill him. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. You won't lie to him. But it's a little harder for us to understand the connection between loving our neighbor and honoring the Sabbath, for example. But that's what the law teaches. That's another thing we should do if we love our neighbor. The law teaches that if we love God, if we love our neighbor, we will keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not just some ceremonial law with no purpose that's been done away. The Sabbath is an example of love manifest. You know, in Indiana, we used to have blue laws. Blue laws, the laws that enforced Sabbath observance. The laws that said all businesses had to be closed on Sunday. We were, were around in the United States until about the 1960s. They were broadly repealed. You know, but not every one of those was repealed. And in the arguments in support of these laws, you can see at least one aspect of the love involved in keeping the Sabbath. You know, in Indiana, it's still law that car dealers have to remain closed on Sunday. It's illegal for car dealers to sell a car on Sunday in Indiana. And the reason is that small car dealers want the restriction. When blue laws were being repealed, car dealers realized if their competition was open on Sunday, in order to remain competitive, all car dealers would have to stay open on Sunday. Small dealerships, which don't have the staff to rotate, would end up either working their staff to death or being run out of business if they closed. When you choose to rest on the Sabbath, not only does it allow you to rest, it allows those around you to rest as well. When you choose to disregard the Sabbath, you're creating work for others. You're interfering with their rest. Whether you're a business owner or just a consumer, to honor the Sabbath is both an act of love toward God in that you're honoring his act of creation. It's also an act of love toward your neighbor. You allow him to rest. The law teaches us that. It teaches us keeping the Sabbath is love toward God and love toward our neighbor. Now, that might seem like a minor point you know, I'm trying to make. I mean, what's the big deal? Jesus says the law hangs on love, so it does. The modern church might not make that connection, but the modern church is very attached to the idea of loving your neighbor. It doesn't connect the law to this love, but it still believes in love. So what's the big deal? As long as we love our neighbor, what's the difference? The problem is, without the law, relying only on our own human understanding, it can be pretty easy to miss what love actually is supposed to look like. The law teaches us things about love that our own human understanding never will. That's why we need the law. It teaches us things human understanding misses. Do you think the modern church sees love in the holy days? They don't, but it's there. Do you think they see love in the food laws? Jesus is telling us it's there, but they don't see it. Do you think the modern church sees love in the laws against homosexuality? Do you think the modern church sees love throughout Mosaic law? They often don't, and because they don't, they fail to learn what the law has to teach. They fail to learn what love actually is. Jesus says all the law is built on love, on loving God and loving our neighbor. 
The holy days, the food laws, all the law. If there be any other commandments briefly comprehended in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The modern church simply does not see that. They don't believe that. If the modern church actually believed that, they would not discard the law like they do. Can you imagine saying, the law is love, and God did away with that law of love? Ultimately, that's what the modern church is saying, even though they don't realize it. Jesus says all the law hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor, and the modern church says that's all done away. There are many examples of love contained in the law that the modern church simply throws away. If you understand the purpose of God's law, to bring us to Christ by teaching us what it means to love our neighbor, if you understand that fact about God's law, you would never go where the modern church goes. You would never think of God's law as done away. You would never think of God's law as oppressive. God's law is simply not oppressive. God's law is simply examples of what it means to love our neighbor. Let me show you something. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me, if you will. And if you don't believe in the law, you miss the lessons it teaches. Remember, according to Scripture, the lessons taught by the law convert your soul. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 5 that anyone who doesn't believe Moses can't actually believe in Christ. He says in verse 46, uh, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you, be, how shall you believe my words? And Proverbs 28.9 says, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. The modern church has turned its ear away from the law. They don't believe it. And because of this, they've lost their connection to God. They've separated themselves from Jesus. Let me show you something in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. This is a passage that many modern Christians actually use to push the idea the law has been changed, done away, that God gave a greater law. And they do away with all the laws they don't like that way and say that we have something higher now. But back up for a moment. This is verse 22. Back up just a few verses of 17. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So Jesus is defending the law here. He isn't attacking the law. Jesus is defending the law of Moses. He's saying, Don't think I'm come to get rid of the law. Not one bit of the law is going away till the end of time. So to put this in context, Jesus is defending the law, not attacking it. And this defense continues in verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The context of this passage we have to remember is Jesus defending the law, not attacking it. So what is Jesus attacking? In verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Which immediately precedes the verse in question, uh, where it says that you have heard that it was said of them of old time. So what is Jesus referring to here? Who said of old time? What is Jesus attacking? He says, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus isn't talking about the righteousness of law. He's talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus is actually contrasting the righteousness of the Pharisees with the righteousness of the law. Now, a lot of people think of the Pharisees as keeping the law. And modern Christians see the scribes and Pharisees as a proxy for the law. And they did pride themselves in keeping the law, but the fact is they didn't actually keep the law. And that's the major contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. When you see Jesus interact with the Pharisees, you often and usually read about Jesus calling them hypocrites. Jesus calls them hypocrites because they claim to follow the law, but in fact they transgress it. In Matthew 15, 1, 
The Pharisees came to Jesus accusing him of transgressing the law. They say, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat the bread. And Jesus answers and said unto them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Jesus says the, tra the Pharisees transgressed the law. For all their claims to righteousness, the Pharisees don't actually keep the law. And they fail to keep the law for the same reason that modern Christians do. The Pharisees didn't understand the law. They missed the spirit behind the law. They missed the lessons the law was teaching. Now let me get back to what I was trying to show you back in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Now remember, Jesus said, Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You have, you have heard it said of them of old time. This is what the Pharisees said. This is referring to the righteousness of the Pharisees. This is what Jesus said we have to be more righteous then. Then Jesus contrasts the righteousness of the Pharisees with true righteousness. Verse 22 refers to true righteousness. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Do you realize verse 22 actually refers to Mosaic law? Let me read you a passage from the law. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 18. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among the people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. That's the law of God. That's Mosaic law. Now, most modern Christians do not realize that loving your neighbor was first voiced in Mosaic law. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, he's quoting Mosaic law. But back to verse 22, Jesus says, if someone is angry with his brother. Now, if someone is angry with his brother, has he violated God's law? Yes, he has. The law says, don't hate your brother. The law says, love your neighbor. If you're angry with your brother, you have already violated God's law, and you're already in danger of the judgment. If you call your brother Raka, which is to call him worthless or empty, if you go around saying he's a fool, you've already violated God's law. That's tail-bearing. That's bearing a grudge. You don't have to go all the way to killing to violate the law. Just hating your brother is already a violation of the law. And drop down to verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. What is lust? The Apostle Paul says, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. That's Romans 7, 7. The biblical definition of lusting is coveting. When a man lusts after a woman, he is coveting, and coveting is a violation of Mosaic law. That's the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. A man doesn't have to commit adultery to be in violation of God's law. If a man simply covets his neighbor's wife, he is already violating God's law. What Jesus was pointing out in Matthew 5 is the Pharisees were failing in their quest for righteousness. They failed to understand the purpose of the law. They failed to see the spirit underneath the law. And they were sinning because of it. The Pharisees knew killing was wrong, but they failed to see that hating your brother in the first place was fundamentally the same thing. They understood adultery was wrong, but they failed to see that lust, that coveting, is fundamentally the same thing. Matthew 5 is not an attack on the law. Matthew 5 is not saying the law has been superseded by a higher law. Matthew 5 is pointing out the foundational purpose of the law in the first place. The law is built on loving our neighbor. You don't kill because killing is failing to love your neighbor. You don't commit adultery because adultery is failing to love your neighbor. The Pharisees were failing to see this underlying spirit of the law. And this is one of the truly sad consequences of the modern church's separation from God's law. They also fail to see the spirit of the law. They fail to learn the lessons that are meant to draw them to Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? 
The modern church does not believe Moses, and this that prevents them from truly connecting with Christ, because the modern church fails to understand the foundational purpose of God's law, because they reject the law God gave through Moses that was designed to bring them to Christ. The modern church ends up lost, just like the Pharisees. They fail to, see, to learn the lessons the law is supposed to teach us, just like the Pharisees. They fail to learn what love truly is. Modern Christianity fails to convert the souls of its followers. Let me give you a couple of examples of how modern Christians miss the lessons God's law tries to teach. Leviticus 19.17 Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Now here's a lesson God's law teaches us. If you're willing to accept what Jesus says about the law, if you're willing to accept the fact that God's law expresses what is love toward your neighbor, then we learn rebuking sin is actually the loving thing to do. It's not to be done in hate. The law says we, need, we are not to harbor hate toward our brother, but rebuking sin is actually an act of love. Now, our culture doesn't believe that. Our culture thinks of love as almost synonymous with acceptance. If you love someone in our culture, you treat them with acceptance. You accept them as they are. You don't try to change them. The last thing you do is judge them. That's the view many modern Christians subscribe to as well. For example, many modern Christians believe we should treat homosexuals with tolerance and acceptance. Modern churches welcome them into the congregation. They leave change up to them. Modern churches do not rebuke as Leviticus 19 commands. They think sinners should be won over through a welcoming attitude. The last thing they should be exposed to is rebuke of any kind. There's a similar attitude commonly toward things like promiscuity, mothers who abort their babies, adultery. Whatever sin you want to mention, the modern church thinks Christians should show our love through acceptance and tolerance, not rebuke. They like to say the church is a place where sinners should feel welcome, not judged. Yet Leviticus 19.17 teaches us the loving thing to do is actually to rebuke your neighbor's sin. To simply accept someone involved in sin and stay mute about their sin isn't actually love. It's neglect. It's actually selfish disregard. If you truly love your neighbor, you will point out their sin. Always with love. But if you care about your neighbor, if you want them to have eternal life, if you want them to be spared the harm that the sin causes, you have to point out the sin. That's how you help them out of their sin. According to God's law, rebuking sin is love toward your neighbor. On the other hand, just accepting people in sin, as modern Christians like to do, as Leviticus puts it, is suffering sin upon them. They're allowing sin to work its harm. Now, modern mis Christians miss that lesson because they reject the law. They don't understand the purpose of the law. They don't look to the law to learn what love is, so they're left with a human understanding of love, and human understanding is often flawed. Gender roles are another one. The gender roles expressed in God's law teach us what love actually is. They teach us how a husband and wife show love to each other. A husband governing his home, a husband who takes leadership over his home, is actually showing love toward his wife. That's what the law teaches. The modern partnership model of marriage isn't love. It isn't love to treat marriage as a democracy where every decision is done by consensus. That's where man's reasoning goes. That's actually irresponsibility on the man's part. That's what our culture has come to believe a loving marriage is, but God's law teaches us our culture's ideal of marriage is actually neglect on the man's part. The modern version of marriage is a study in neglect of responsibilities by both the husband and the wife. A loving husband takes authority in his home. A husband who fails to take authority in his home is not loving. He's actually failing to love his wife. It's one of the reasons so many of our marriages fail today, because we don't have a pattern of love in our marriage. The modern world fails the, the lessons of God's law. And the lessons that are throughout his law, you know, they're, they're, they're in everything. Even something like the, the sacrificial laws show lots of lessons of love. I mean, kinsman redemption, substitutionary sacrifice, you know, the, the debt that a sin creates. 
All those are lessons of love that are contained in the sacrificial laws. You know, Christ's sacrifice itself is, is a lesson that's contained in the laws of sacrifice in Mosaic law. The modern church fails to understand the basic purpose of so many things in God's law. And that brings me to the subject of repentance, the last subject here. In order to repent, we have to recognize and acknowledge our sin. You cannot repent if you don't recognize your own sin. And in order to recognize your sin, you need to understand the lessons of the law. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 7, I had not known sin, but by the law. Let the law teach you. Study it. Let the law convict you. Read it. Let the law convert you. You will not understand sin without the law. You will not see your own sin without the law. That's why this nation is lost. That's why this nation is not going to repent. It's not going to repent because it doesn't understand it's sinning in the first place. It does not understand what sin actually is. This nation does not look to God's law to define sin. And the result is it doesn't believe it is sinning. That means judgment is in store. It's coming. There will be no avoiding it. We aren't going to save this nation because this nation will not repent. It doesn't think it needs to. But we can save our families. We can save our churches. We can save ourselves. We can repent of our sins and see the loving care and deliverance of God in our lives. That's the only path forward. We have to draw closer to God. But that path requires our repentance. That path requires we look to the law. That, that requires that we look to the law to learn what sin is. And most importantly, it requires we look to the law to learn what sins we ourselves are involved in and are committing. You know, it's easy to fall in the trap of self-righteousness. Most of modern Christianity is there. And some of the elect have fallen too. You know, it's easy to look at the sins that plague modern society. There's abortion, there's interracial marriage, there's homosexuality and transgenderism. And it's easy to say, you know, I'm not involved in any of that. I'm not in an interracial marriage. I'm not involved in abortion or homosexuality. It's easy to think of ourselves as righteous. That's where human nature tends to go. That's where our minds like to take us. We like to think of ourselves as basically good. Oh, sure, we might give lip to service to the fact that we're all idea, or we're all sinners. But when we say that, are we actually thinking about the gravity of our own sins? You know, often we aren't. When you understand the law, when you understand the purpose of the law, when you study the spirit of the law, you begin to realize there's a lot more sin in our lives than appears on the surface. You know, this is the real reason so many people think of God's law as having so many rules. They instinctively feel how all-encompassing God's law is. There aren't very many rules. But God's law touches your entire life. There aren't very many rules, but loving your neighbor impacts every single relationship you have. There aren't very many rules in God's law. Essentially, there are only two. But those two touch every single corner of your life. There are many things that otherwise would be fine, but take on the taint of sin solely because they're done with disregard for others. Take, for example, a wife working outside the home. You know, Proverbs 31 talks about a virtuous woman buying a field and planting a vineyard. It talks about her making clothes and selling them to merchants. It's not wrong for a wife to work outside the home. But when a wife decides to pursue a career in today's world, often her decision is not driven by love for her husband. It's not driven by love for her children. Her decision, as feminism puts it, is driven by a pursuit of self-fulfillment. When you pursue a career out of self-fulfillment and not love for your family, and when a decision is driven by self-interest, when it shows a disregard for others, a neglect for others, it's sin. How many men resent women today? Maybe there was a divorce or breakup. You can understand. Maybe they've had hard, bad relationships. It's led to bitterness and resentment. But do we realize that's sin? The war between the sexes, the resentment and hostility between the sexes, that's sin. We are to love others, 
Bitterness and resentment is not love, it's sin. How often do we do things without love toward others? How often do we talk to people? How often do we interact with people? How often do we simply think of other people with something, something other than love toward them? The fact is, too often we hold grudges. Too often we're tailbearers. Too often we harbor something less than love toward our brother. We are to act with not just concern for ourselves, but love for others. You know, it's a sin to act out of selfishness. It's a sin to act out of bitterness. It's a sin to act out of resentment. It's so easy to focus only on our own good, on protecting our rights. That's how our culture does. But, our God, but God's law reminds us of our responsibilities to others instead of our rights. How many people think of attending church as a responsibility rather than a right? People in our culture love to protect their right to attend the church of their choice. But God's law reminds us of our responsibility towards others. Keeping the feast, the Sabbath is part of that law, is an act of love towards others. Attending church is an act of love toward God. It's an act of love toward the body of Christ. The lesson of the law is think of others before ourselves, to think of our responsibilities rather than our rights. Love God. Love your neighbor. Can we honestly say that every word, every action, everything we do is out of love for the people around us? And I don't mean just your friends, but your enemies too. Jesus says we are even to love our enemies. It's Matthew 5 as well. Can any of us say that? No. None of us can say that. I can't say that. None of us can say we operate in perfect love toward others and perfect love toward everyone we come in contact with. And that is sin. The fact is we are all sinners. I point this out. The whole point of this lesson is we're facing tough times ahead. We, as Jesus urged us, it's time to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to focus on repentance. We need to draw as close as we can to our Father in heaven because judgment is at hand. The only salvation rests in getting right with God. That's the only path forward. His providence is the only salvation available. We need to focus on this book, on this book, our, our, our holy Bible, our holy scripture. We need to focus on it in law because it offers the only way through the judgment to come. Thank you, and we thank our Father. And the world is